Without further ado, Doug Robertson is going to introduce Doug Corley. And Doug Robertson, as you know, is a professor of medicine in the Department of Medicine. He's also the division chief of gastroenterology at our VA hospital in White River Junction. I could tell you a lot about Doug, but he'd prefer that he has time to tell you about the other Doug. <laughs> the real Doug here today. Um, so it's again, it's my good morning, everybody. It's my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Doug Corley. Uh, Doug has made the trek from California, where he works as a gastroenterologist and clinical scientist at Kaiser Permanente Northern California. He also has a faculty appointment uh, at the rank of clinical professor at the University of California at San Francisco. His training highlights include earning his MD at the University of Pennsylvania, then completing his internship and residency uh, in medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He returned to the West Coast to complete his GI Fellowship training at UCSF, where he subsequently transitioned to the faculty there. Early in his academic career, he somehow found the time and energy to not only earn an MPH, but also a PhD at Berkeley. Uh, perhaps given this outstanding training, uh, it's not entirely surprising that he's really had a prolific uh, productivity as an investigator. He's received over 45 uh, funded awards. About half of those are large NIH, NCI uh, funded grants and contracts. Again, through that support, he's published nearly 200 papers, the vast majority of those being original research and many in our highest journals, including the New England Journal, JAMA, Annals of Internal Medicine, and our subspecialty flagship journal, Gastroenterology. Given the breadth of his publication, it's hard to summarize his work in just a line or two. I would say in brief, he used his training and sizable skill as an epidemiologist to understand risk factors, disease progression, and outcomes with a particular focus on the often complicated issues of screening and surveillance. While he's examined disease both inside and outside the GI tract, um, his major focus within uh, GI work is in uh, esophageal cancer and colorectal cancer, and again, the progression to those diseases. Beyond his own work, he nationally performs a number of important roles. He currently serves as co-editor-in-chief of our lead subspecialty journal, Gastroenterology. He's chair of the steering committee for the NCI PROSPER Consortium, which aims to optimize screening through personalized regimens. And he also co-leads the screening and prevention work group for the NCI's multi-center cancer research network. On a personal note, I've gotten to work with Doug in a couple of different uh, venues. Most notably, we were associated editors together. And in that capacity, I can tell you that he's an incredibly clear and articulate uh, individual who has a great ability to understand research methodology, not only critique it, but again, does a great job improving all the work that he touches. And I think that really comes through in his research as well. I think we're fortunate that uh, his daughter chose Dartmouth as an undergraduate place to get her education. Perhaps that helped us recruit him out here during our winter months from California. And again, in light of the fact that we're just heading into March, CRC Screening Awareness Month, I think uh, his talk is very timely. It's entitled, Getting to Zero Deaths from Colorectal Cancer, Bridging Research and Clinical Care. So without further ado, Dr. Corley. Thank you very much for a very generous and detailed um, <laughs> discussion. And I, I enjoyed getting the, uh, the quarter BMI credit from the culinary medicine uh, this morning. Uh, really a very interesting and novel program. Um, first of all, thank you for the invitation. It's really a privilege to be able to, to be here um, and also to be able to see a number of people uh, that I've worked with, I mean, including Anna Tostason, who I'd worked with on the, on the PROSPER initiative. This is just an incredibly impressive group. And um, I know that you know Wojtrostein as, uh, you know, as your chief of medicine. You know, I know him as, you know, one of the nations and actually really like the world's leaders in being able to put together novel technologies and, and particularly some of the hardest things to do, which are novel endoscopic trials. 
um, you know, you know Doug uh, from his work at the VA, but I don't know that every one of you knows that, you know, they just recently completed uh, randomizing 50,000 patients uh, to FIT versus colonoscopy in one of the world's largest uh, randomized trials relating to different cancer screening methods. And it kind of goes on and on. I mean, Corey Siegel's uh, work with inflammatory bowel disease and putting together national uh, registries, et cetera. Uh, just a, it's really an impressive GI group, uh, an impressive hospital, and a, it's really a privilege to be able to be here. And thank you again for the invitation. Um, so, you know, in thinking about uh, uh, the talk today, I was trying to think of what, you know, what really to be able to put together. And um, I think one of the challenges has, is, is always like, well, what should I do for research? You know, what should I do for a research project? And then how do you actually structure that in such a way uh, to be able to, to, to do it in uh, a, a way that's logical and kind of builds on itself? Um, and as our group has transitioned from doing more discovery work to more applied work uh, in collaboration with uh, a number of, of really great scientists uh, and, and clinicians through a couple of different networks. This seemed an opportunity to be able to summarize some of that. Um, and it's, it's quite interesting in colorectal cancer uh, because although it seems like, gosh, there's just no way you're going to be able to get to zero deaths, it actually seems that by thinking about it systematically, it's possible that we may be able to get fairly close there. Um, one of the challenges is in putting together uh, uh, what might be called delivery science or uh, applied research is that the clinical structures are really complex and people value different things. Uh, the health plan values different things and the patient values and what the clinicians value. And a lot of the aspects of research and modeling and patient care are really these separate silos. And so one of the questions is how to be able to, to bridge these. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about this, but a lot of what we are working on now is the whole aspect of the learning healthcare system and how to be able to kind of connect these different parts of being able to identify and evaluate high impact questions, of being able to go into the data realm and assemble and analyze data to be able to look at those, to interpret those results with stakeholders, which include a lot of the people who are in this room and who are actually applying care, um, and then to be able to develop, implement change, and then kind of go back and evaluate whether that change actually made a difference. Um, and so one of the things which we've been working on is, is um, this physician researcher program, which actually puts funded physicians kind of in the middle of this, of this cycle uh, to be able to help to be able to uh, accelerate it. So, you know, we go after obvious targets like colorectal cancer deaths, but, you know, if this doesn't work, we're not quite where we want to do, be. Like, where, where do we go? So this is a really nice study that was done by Ann Zauber's group at Memorial Sloan Kettering in conjunction with the Erasmus group in, in the Netherlands. I'm looking at uh, the changes in colorectal cancer screening uh, deaths over time. And, you know, if you look kind of back in the 1970s where the incidence was, uh, you know, up around uh, uh, 27 to 30, and you say, well, what, was, what are the components of uh, this pretty substantial reduction? And this is really pretty remarkable reduction in colorectal cancer deaths like, over time. Uh, what, what are the different parts that contribute to it? Well, some of it was reduction in risk factors, and some of it was treatment, this little bit there. But most of it appeared to be into the introduction of screening. And so as we think about, well, what might work for decreasing colorectal cancer deaths, you can look at treatments. And really, that is a remarkable thing now with a lot of the new genetic treatments. Um, but one of the areas that might be a leverage point is the aspect of screening. So as we look to be able to get down further, um, we, we think about, well, there's, there are colorectal cancer deaths, but even with effective screening, there's probably a lot more 
uh, that is going on. So I'm, first of all, I'm always just struck by these are, these are the deaths uh, uh, from different t cancer types. I'm always struck by the number of deaths from lung cancer relative to the other ones. And I think this is, um, continues to be you know, kind of an underappreciated uh, 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 aspect of, of our cancer care in the United States. But nevertheless, colorectal cancer deaths, you know, even with screening, is the second leading cause of cancer death. And as, if you want to think of, well, what does it make a difference then? If we're doing screening, should we go after these, you know, missed or what are called, you know, interval or post-screening cancers? Are they important? Um, well, the number of these, if, even if you have, let's say, two-thirds effective colorectal cancer screening, um, would still be equal to the uh, total number of patients who had or died from leukemia in the United States. Or let's say you said, well, colorectal cancer screening is about a third effective in decreasing the number of colorectal cancer deaths. That would then be equal to all of the deaths from pancreatic cancer. So the number of remaining cancers, even after you introduce screening, um, is, is a large number. So this is still an important topic. So I'm going to stop for a second. And I know that this is a very experienced group. And let's just say that for breast cancer, I, the, none of the gastroenterologists can raise their hand on this question because I, I asked this question last night. But so um, what, what, do, what, what is your impression on the effectiveness of mammography for breast cancer screening? What percent reduction in, uh, in cancer deaths would you expect? Anybody? Okay, 15 to 20%. Other thoughts? Okay, so th this is kind of somewhat controversial, but it's probably somewhere in the 20s. Um, so think about the kind of program that we roll out for decreasing deaths from breast cancer in terms of get, making sure that everyone is getting a study done every single year within a certain age group within the United States. And that's for a, a reduction in mortality, which is in the 20s. So um, before we go on, what do you people think that their mortality reduction is from uh, effective colorectal cancer screening? And the, the two methods that are most commonly used in the United States are colonoscopy and fecal immunochemical testing. And I'll just put it out there that the modeling group suggests that with complete, perfect compliance, that those two are equivalent in reduction of colorectal cancer deaths. So what is the, your estimate on what your percent mortality reduction is from that? 50, 75? Okay, all right, so why don't we kind of go on? So first of all, that's pretty impressive compared to, um, to, to some of the others. And let's see what, what some of the other data shows. So one of the questions is how do, you, how do you get people screened and how do you get people screened effectively? Anyone know who this is? Russian, writes big novels. <laughs> Looks like Rasputin. Yeah, it's actually Tolstoy. <laughs> so what, what he said was, you know, happy families are all alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Um, and this is kind of true about things with, within medicine, um, you know, which, like, when things go well, everything goes great. You know, when things are, um, uh, are not going so well, uh, then everything can kind of go different, uh, go, go, go wrong in a different way. Um, I'm actually going to... Don't particularly like being behind podium, so it's okay. I'm going to kind of wander around a little bit. Let me put this in my pocket. Anna knows this about me, so I apologize. <laughs> um, so um, this is this is. Uh, I'm going to talk a, a lot of this is within the Prosper Consortium. I'm just going to be summarizing some of the work uh, of this group, um, and this was the the first iteration uh, of which uh, Anna had 
led some of the, the work here. And it's a consortium of a few different types of cancers. So the NCI's thought with this was, well, we know that screening works for cervical cancer and breast cancer and colorectal cancer. What can these cancers learn from each other, the investigators? And then what can uh, they also work on individually, like within a cancer and across cancers? So um, one of the, the thoughts is that if you look at the whole sequence of cancer screening, that you can look at what the leverage points are to, to try to be able to make a difference. And I found this really super helpful um, in, in, a lot of different, uh, in a lot of different realms. And the, the, the pathway for this is starting with the assessment of risk, doing primary prevention, uh, early detection, so that's screening, diagnosis, so that's, for example, if you have a positive screening test like FIT, you actually have to then go on to do a colonoscopy. Treatment of the cancers, uh, surveillance, and then and end of life care. And so the place is where that, uh, that some of the major problems can come in um, are failure to screen, uh, failure to detect, uh, failure to follow up or treat, uh, and then also some of these early failures in terms of uh, doing risk, uh, risk stratification. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I've been asked if there's someone on the other end if you can mute the microphone. Uh, I guess if, there, if there's a, tele, a telesite which is out there. Thank you. Um, <laughs> success. <laughs> so it, at least within this realm, we're mainly going to be talking about a few aspects. So this is not so much talking about whether or not we have effective treatments or effective uh, prevention like smoking, but it's mostly going to be talking about were you screened? You know, was the screening test optimally effective, such as for colonoscopy or FIT? Uh, and did you follow up on the abnormal results? So the, uh, the couple of different parts we're going to emphasize within then, in terms of optimal screening effectiveness, uh, you know, one is something which is called adenoma detection rate. Uh, how many people have heard of this term? I know the gastroenterologists have, but okay. How many people have not heard of this? Great. And then, um, and then fecal immunochemical testing. And then did you perform on that follow-up on abnormal results? So this is if you got a fecal immunochemical test, did you follow up? Now, these seem like simple things. But the thought behind this, and, and some people may have seen this kind of nomogram, is that let's just say you have a test or you have an intervention that is 100% effective. You can wipe out a disease. That sounds great. But in order to be able to wipe out the disease, you actually have to be able to apply it. So let's say it only gets applied to 50% of the people. So right there, you've lost 50% of your effectiveness. Let's say you actually need to be able to apply it on a regular basis, like it's a medication that someone needs to take daily, and that taking it every other day only decreases the effectiveness by, by half. So in that case, then you start getting down to smaller and smaller numbers, where even though you have an absolutely perfect intervention, there's a relatively small proportion of the total deaths from that condition. And so this is working on that, on that thought, that, um, that you have to be able to look at each of these steps. So the first example I'm going to talk about is just adenoma detection rate. And this is just you know, how, to be, how to be able to structure and what some of the results were of investigations relating to this. So adenoma detection rate is the thought that if you take 100 gastroenterologists and they do colonoscopy on, let's say, 100 patients each, that there's going to be some variation in the proportion of patients that they identify with precancerous polyps. So among let's say gastroenterologist one, may identify 40 patients that have at least one precancerous polyp. Gastroenterologist number two may identify 30. Another gastroenterologist may identify 20. 
So this is thought to be a, a reflection of what the, their performance is. And um, there's a lot of challenges with this in that people can say, well, there are other explanations for it, and we'll kind of talk about that a little bit. But I would liken it to if you're getting your blood test drawn, and you have, let's say you're getting your blood glucose drawn, and you're going to this lab, and you get a lab value of 100, and you go to another lab, what is the lab test value likely to be at that other lab? And um, so as we go through this, we'll, we'll kind of talk about that example again. So there's a number of things you have to be able to do for this. It seems really simple, but the first thing you actually have to do is to be able to say, well, I can identify whether someone had a colonoscopy. I can identify whether or not they actually had a precancerous polyp. Um, you have to be able to say, well, there's differences in age. There's all sorts of different things. And so um, you need to be able to do this in a valid way. The second question is, is, well, how much variation is there? So you have to be able to actually identify the gastroenterologists and link them to all of these other things. Um, you want to be able to say, are there other things that are accounting for this? So if you say Dr. A and Dr. B are different, what do you think the first thing that Dr. Let's say Dr. B has something which is lower than Dr. A. What do you think the first thing Dr. B is going to say? Yeah, my patients are different. You know, my patients are sicker, my patients, you know, something else. So you have to be able to, uh, to, be able to adjust for case mix. And then there's other aspects, too. You know, there may be actually system-level things, like Dr. A takes care of all of their patients at some place that has, like, really good bowel preps, and Dr. B has something else which is different. Um, and then the, ultimately, the ultimate thing that you're interested in is whether or not that actually makes any difference in patient outcomes. Um, and then if it does, uh, are you able to be able to see whether or not um, there are kind of like longer-term effects in developing interventions? So um, first of all, uh, Tom Imperiali was one of the first people who had looked at this. And there was also a separate study that was in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was really one of the first things that looked at it. And this is what they looked at in terms of the, um, the variation in adenoma detection rate. So the, there, there, are, there are two columns here. Um, and I'm mainly going to focus on the, the black bar. And this, each one of these is a gastroenterologist. So this gastroenterologist had an adenoma detection rate which was less than 10%. And this gastroenterologist had an adenoma detection rate which was about 40%. So let's go back to our, um, let's go back to our blood glucose uh, analogy. You know, this is about an eight-fold variation. So this is the equivalent of going to one lab and saying, well, your blood glucose is 50, and going to another lab and saying your blood glucose is, uh, is like 400. So this is a huge amount of variation between physicians for what, what should be considered you know, kind of like a standardized test. Uh, and so this, was, this was kind of started raising, raising alarm bells in, in terms of whether or not there, were, there might be differences in outcome. But the flip side of it was that a lot of people said, well, you know, maybe people are just finding these little tiny precancerous polyps that don't make any difference, and taking these out then is leading to complications as opposed to leading to benefit. And this was one of the main uh, points of discussion with this. Um, but the second thing is the mean procedure time. So this is sometimes what is called like the withdrawal time. And so this was thought to be like, well, this is one of the things that we can intervene on. Um, but you'll notice that, and, and the, the, this study, actually one of the things they said was these people are taking a longer amount of time. They're looking longer. But if you also look, this is a huge amount of variation with this. And you have a lot of physicians who are high performers here who are actually spending about the same amount of time as the people who are not uh, uh, taking uh, shorter periods of time. So um, one of the things that we looked at was, well, is this something which is like a medical center phenomenon? 
And so this was all, these are um, about 18 of the medical centers from Kaiser Permanente uh, in Northern California. And you know, we found a fair amount of difference, about a two-fold difference in adenoma detection rate. So uh, this raised one of the questions of, well, maybe there's something kind of going on with the equipment or something else. But the challenge was is when you actually, each one of these little dots is one person at each of those medical centers. The, the realistic thing was that the variation across the people was way greater than the variation across the medical centers. And if you just moved a couple people, like you moved a couple of those people there and replaced them with some people who would be up here, you would find that this whole medical center would shift you know, over to there. And so it really seemed like most of the variation was related to the gastroenterologist. And I would emphasize throughout this discussion, this is no different than anything else that we do. How completely you come to a stop at a stop sign, how thoroughly you brush your teeth, you know, almost everything there's gonna, you're going to find that there's variation um, of this type in. The main question really is, is does the variation make a difference? Um, so then we started getting to like what your point was. was oh, well, my, my patients are different. You know, that's, that's kind of really the reason behind this. And so um, uh, one of the questions then was, well, how much, what are the main drivers for patients? Um, and uh, there had been, there's, there was a known difference uh, by, by sex in that men have, are more commonly found to have adenomas and colorectal cancer than women. Um, what wasn't so well known uh, or described was what the variation was by age. So we were started off just by looking at this because we want to be able to try to be able to adjust for the different types of confounders. Uh, and this kind of describes what, essentially like what your test yield would be uh, over time. So this is a couple of the first steps. You know, the first was we actually had to be able to develop algorithms for finding uh, and classifying a colonoscopy indication uh, and also for identifying other components. And then also for looking at variation um, among uh, patients to be able to look kind of like for potential confounders. The next question came like, well, what happens if you adjust your physician's case mix for some of these factors to be able to address the question that you had had? So this is a little bit of a complicated slide, but let me just kind of walk you through it because I think it's really core to uh, the way that we think about a lot of this. So each one of these little dots on the left side is a, is a doctor. And in our system at this point in time, we had about 100 gastroenterologists. Oh, so that's very convenient for calculating percentages and things. We had a little bit more than that, but um, in terms of the way that you think about it. And so there were two things. One was the crude, and then the other is the adjusted. And so we ranked all the gastroenterologists effectively from 1 to 100, from the highest adenoma detection rates down to the lowest adenoma detection rate, and then said, well, is your rank order going to change if you adjust for your patient's mix? So if you have younger patients and women patients, you're more likely to have a lower adenoma detection rate. If you have older patients and male patients, you're more likely to have a high. And across you know, 18 medical centers and you know, a lot of gastroenterologists, how much of a difference did this make? And uh, in a nutshell, there was one person who moved out of the bottom quartile. So pretty much, um, if you are in the bottom quartile, it's not an explanation of your patient mix. Um, it's something else which is going on. Uh, so, all right, that's the, all very interesting, but we're still kind of left with the question of does this actually make any difference? So um, there, are a, there are a number of other studies, uh, or some other studies that we had done on um, uh, uh, on other aspects of you know, endoscopist fatigue and the number of 
patients that they were seeing in a day and, and other things like that to try to be able to see if there were other predictors of what adenoma detection rate were. Um, but in an, uh, the, the core one was the one that I just showed. So the, the, the next question then uh, was, was one of the bigger ones, um, which was, if you take this variation, what happens to people's patients? So we were able to link people's adenoma detection rates with uh, what their patients' future outcomes were. And uh, there were two things that we were interested in. You know, one was, were they diagnosed in the future? So not at their colonoscopy that did the adenoma detection rate, but following that. Um, uh, did they develop a cancer in the future? And then did they die from colorectal cancer in the future? Uh, and there, uh, so this, this is the look, the risk of actually developing a cancer in the future. And we put the uh, physicians into uh, five boxes uh, just by quintile, so the lowest 20% and going up. And I would emphasize that um, the, uh, these quintiles um, were, even the physicians who were in the lowest quintile were approximately at or above what were considered in the United States to be the, the minimum number of adenomas that you should be detecting on your exams. There had been some standards that had been kind of put together for this. So this is really kind of starting at kind of like the baseline and then kind of going up. And uh, we found that uh, the physicians who were in the highest quintile, their patients had about half the risk of developing colorectal cancer in the future as the physicians who were in the lowest quintile. And uh, they had about a 60% lower risk of dying from colorectal cancer. So this then really was trying to be able to get to that core question of, all right, well, you see this variation, but does it actually really make any difference? So the, the next question really was, well, um, this is all very interesting, but you know, some of these patients weren't really followed for very long. What were their complications? Uh, and, uh, and other, uh, what kind of like are some of the lifetime effects for this? Those are really hard questions to be able to get at within a, uh, an observational study or even a randomized trial. And it's one of the things where you can uh, partner with people for doing modeling. So um, some of the uh, things which we looked at first of all with this, there were I think some of the absolute risk changes. So what, what, is, what does this actually mean? So the, the interval cancer risk per 10,000 person was people was um, about, uh, about five interval cancers per 10,000 person years for people who had had a screening exam, a little higher for surveillance or for diagnostic. But another way of thinking about this was that this hazard ratio suggested that if you moved a doctor from the bottom quintile to the top quintile, for every 213 colonoscopies they did over the next 10 years, um, uh, you would be uh, preventing uh, one interval cancer. So this is a helpful way for me to think about it, because if you do about a thousand, the gastroenterologists do a you know, thousand or something colonoscopies a year. For every year that you're in practice, if you were kind of towards the lower end and you move towards the higher end, there'd be four or five cancers that you would be preventing. So it's, it's kind of a fairly concrete number needed to treat type number. Um, so, so let's kind of then go to the, the modeling question. And, and this was done, uh, again, with the, the uh, Ann Zauber at Memorial Sloan Kettering and with uh, 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 the Erasmus group. And this is projecting out over a longer period of time. So as you might expect, if you're following people for a longer period of time and they're developing more cancers and there is this effect, you're going to find something pretty similar to what we just described, but it's going to be a little bit larger. So they found that the number of cancer cases uh, by being in the highest quintile, and again, this is modeling, so it's, uh, it has some assumptions, but 
This is the modeling group which is used by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. Uh, would, would go down by about 57%. The number of deaths would go down by about 60%, and similar to the life years lost. So those are, those are kind of similar numbers. But some of the other things which are kind of interesting was the thought was, like, but if you do this, if you start finding all these little polyps, the number of colonoscopies you're going to be doing for surveillance is just going to go through the roof. And then there's complications from those colonoscopies. There's going to be a lot of other harms from taking out these little polyps. And this allowed us to estimate those. So the number of colonoscopies for surveillance, sure enough, actually went up a fair amount. But the interesting thing is, is that, and this was somewhat... I don't know why we didn't really think about this, but realistically, if you're going from, let's say, an, an, an adenoma detection rate of 25% to about 30%, that's only an additional 5% of all of the people who are getting surveillance exams, but that actually moves you up about two, two of those quintiles. So going up in adenoma detection rate um, results in, in, in fairly, actually only about a 15% increase in the total number of colonoscopies that you're going to be doing. The adverse event rate goes up, but those are relatively uncommon, and most of them are relatively minor. They're not life-threatening. They're, they're something similar to, to having bleeding after a polyp. So this ends up being one of those interesting things where the cancer treatment costs, not surprisingly, you're getting rid of about half the cancers. Your treatment costs for, um, is drop substantially. The screening costs go up by a little bit. But because of the difference between these two, and I would say that this is actually increasing because cancer treatment costs... These were not like the modern cancer treatment costs of what we've been seeing over the last couple of years and with the new agents. This is probably going to magnify. This is one of those things that ends up being both um, life-saving and cost-saving uh, by being able to improve uh, what might be called colonoscopy quality. So we've kind of gone through a bunch of steps you know, for this. And then the next thing is, is really, if you believe all of this, is saying, well, then how do we actually increase uh, uh, adenoma detection rate or, or try to be able to get it so that if you have a blood glucose of 100, kind of consistently it's being reported you know, at 100 at different labs, different people. Um, and that's what we're working on currently. So this was, a, this was kind of a, a, a large example from one, uh, and a work from a lot of people on one topic. I'm going to just switch to a different example and, and kind of a little bit more quickly run through this type of a sequence. But because fecal immunochemical testing is increasingly popular throughout the world, um, including in the United States, to, in order to be able to boost uh, screening rates, this is something which is similar. And this is just the topic of if you get someone, not if you get someone into fecal immunochemical testing, but you have to be able to make sure that they actually follow up. Um, so again, similar type of thoughts. You have to be able to kind of go through all of these, all of the sequence. Um, you have to be able to identify people who had the test and estimate their performance characteristics, et cetera. So um, some of these things, uh, you know, Jeff Lee at UCSF had done a systematic review on fit performance characteristics. Um, there were uh, also some other ones in terms of trying to be able to identify these, these tests. Uh, and this was done by, actually, Anna, uh, being able to compare follow-up test rates from different types of cancers. So the top is if you have, and Anna, correct me if I'm misquoting this horribly, please. Um, the top is for breast cancer. And this is if you have a, a positive screening test, um, making sure that you uh, get follow-up. And so there's two things here. One is the absolute number, yes, no, did you get follow-up? And then the second thing is, is how quickly you got follow-up. 
So the impressive thing about breast cancer screening is, A, almost everybody gets follow-up, and B, they get it really fast. The second thing which we can look at is for, um, and I'm not going to actually, there's cervical cancer here too, but I'm, I'm not going to go into that as much detail. That's the one which is at the bottom. But uh, for colorectal cancer, this was if you get a FIT test, so a positive screening test, how long does it take, and do you get follow-up? Well, the first, there, so there, there, were, uh, there were three uh, different lines, uh, which were here, uh, representing different institutions. And the first thing that you notice is, even among the highest number, uh, the highest performing institution, it's way below breast cancer. So you have a positive cancer screening test that's not being followed up on. And the second thing is it takes a while. So the question with this is then, first, I think whether or not you get the screening, almost everyone would say, yes, you should get this follow-up screening because the screening test is ineffective. So we didn't decide to focus on that because we said, well, okay, well, we really should do an intervention to get people to have follow-up. But the question then came like, well, how quickly do you actually need for them to be followed up? Do you need this? Because, you know, that's hard. If, if someone's cancer risk is going up quickly, then you want to get them in fast. But getting someone in for a colonoscopy is not a small deal. They often have to arrange a ride. They have to be able to cancel their work. They have to take a bowel prep. It's a sedated procedure. And so it makes a big difference if you're saying you have to get them in within, for example, what breast cancer screening is doing, like within a couple of weeks, you know, versus within some longer period of time. And we just don't really know that much about the cancer biology. So um, the... Um, we, we kind of, the first thing was we started, a, a number of people looked at, uh, uh, at different factors that were associated with this. And this is just trying to get to the point of trying to be able to get people screened. So Jessica Chuback had done this study, uh, which was looking at the um, uh, influence of different health care systems uh, and patient factors, you know, on this. Uh, and, you know, there is this variation by health care system. So this is Kaiser Permanente, Northern California, Southern California, group health um, and University of Texas Southwestern, which is a safety net hospital at, at Parkland. Um, and so then you can kind of start diving into those more like, oh, well, what is, what, is, what, are, what is this system doing differently from this system that we can learn about? And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about that. Um, but those are ways of being able to make sure that people do get follow-up. Um, and some of the things um, that they found was there's some differences by age, there's some differences by gender, there's some differences by comorbidity scores. Um, but some of the other things, such as uh, BMI and race ethnicity, really had kind of like only small effects. And there were several other studies that uh, were done. Uh, Carrie Klebundi at the NCI, uh, Stacey Fedowa at uh, the American Cancer Society, uh, looking at some of these other factors as well. But the main thing that we were interested in was how long. Like, does it matter if you're getting someone in in two weeks versus four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks? And so um, we had done uh, this study, which was uh, then looking at, well, among the people who have a test done, they get their follow-up done here versus here versus here versus here. What is, there's two things. One was, what is the risk of any colorectal cancer? And then what is the risk of having an advanced stage? And somewhat to our surprise, the risk of having detecting any colorectal cancer. So what does that measure? That actually measures the, like, the screening test picking up a colon polyp or a colon cancer. Because if you have a colon cancer right here, um, the only way that you'd have, be more likely to have any cancer at a different point is because a polyp turned into a cancer. You have more cancers. And then the second thing that we looked at was um, the likelihood uh, of, of people having 
um, uh, what, sorry, advanced stage cancer. And that had a very similar uh, curve. So this then um, kind of started a lot of controversy because it started a little bit of, well, how long can you wait? Should you wait? What should you actually really do? But in a nutshell, um, this uh, allowed us to be able to establish a, some, some bars uh, for saying, uh, well, you probably don't need to get people in within two months, but you really should start to be able to think about you know, what, what your schedule is for getting people in and being able to make sure that people uh, are actually getting in. But if, you go, if we go back to Anna's work, the interesting thing is, is that it suggests that all of these institutions, even though they were taking different amounts of time, by and large, were getting in their target numbers um, within this time interval in which there was likely to be harm. So then the main goal then is probably not so much increasing the rapidity, but increasing um, the likelihood that, that people actually get in. So um, the last thing I'm going to talk about, and this kind of gets back to what some of our guesses were towards the beginning, were what is the likelihood of, um, or what, what is the, is it feasible to get people screened? And what is the impact of that on, on mortality? So there are, um, uh, there's a, a, a guideline from the GI and cancer societies of getting 80% of the population screened by 2018. That was set a few years ago. And there's a lot of question about whether or not it was feasible because only about 60% of the population uh, was screened at that period of time. So this is uh, something from Kaiser Permanente in Northern California just to give you an idea of a program that was put together uh, around this time uh, in 2006 and 2007, and this is run by uh, T.R. Levin, uh, to be able to get people screened. It was mostly by saying, uh, if you have not been screened, we're going to be doing outreach with fecal immunochemical testing. Um, and you also can do what's called opportunistic screening, like anyone can get screened by colonoscopy. All you have to do is ask or their provider ask, but we're not you know, mailing a, that's not what's kind of being mailed to people's houses. And so this resulted in, um, by the last few years, over 80% of the people getting screened, the combination of colonoscopy. And then these other ones are like, well, what are you being screened by? So this one, this line is, this is when the FIT program got started. So this is the proportion of people who are being screened by fecal immunochemical test. And then uh, the other is, is people who are being screened by colonoscopy. So you can see that there's a pretty large proportion of people who are being screened by one or the other. But then the question came of, uh, well, what is, the, what is the effect of this? Well, the effect was two things. First of all, as you might expect, the number of the incidence of colorectal cancer uh, actually went up because you're detecting more colorectal cancers. Um, but then because this, unlike uh, mammography, you actually are able to take out precancerous lesions, you actually can expect to see the incidence in the future go down, and that's what we found. You know, fairly remarkably, um, this was the mortality. And so over a 15-year period of time, the mortality actually dropped by approximately 50%. And this is among the full population, including screened and unscreened. So, um, you know, these, these implementation uh, research projects, this, you know, they, 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 they take a lot of time and effort. Um, and uh, Henry Kaiser, who uh, happened to be the, one of the, found, the founders of Kaiser Steel, um, he had this slogan, which was, you know, live daringly, boldly, and fearlessly. 
And I think you really, when you're thinking about research projects and you're thinking about clinical implementations, you have to think about what the big picture is um, in order to be able to make uh, like substantial impacts. And so one of the challenges is, is how do you really kind of take on some of these big questions? I think that's one of the reasons why the NCI had funded uh, the, the, the PROSPER initiatives and some other large initiatives in trying to be able to decrease cancer deaths. Um, so it really does take a village to be able to, to do these projects. Um, and I just want to be able to thank a number of my collaborators across a number of different systems. Um, and I'd be happy to be able to, to talk you know, more in detail with these. We, there, one of them, uh, Chaik Dubaini at the University of Pennsylvania had done a project which was looking at the overall effectiveness of colon cancer screening. And we don't have randomized trials for this. Um, so, but he focused on uh, colonoscopy. And so the answer to that, at least from the case control study uh, that was done, was the suggestion that it decreases deaths from colorectal cancer probably by about 75%. So when you think about what you can do, uh, being able to make sure that your patients get screened appropriately for colorectal cancer uh, is one of the things that is probably one of the most effective things that we can do for decreasing colorectal cancer mortality. And hopefully by working through some of these other um, uh, strategies, we can make sure that people get screened, that they get the appropriate follow-up, and with some of the new treatments that we have available uh, for people who nevertheless get colorectal cancer can get the number of colorectal cancer deaths fairly close to zero. So thank you very much. All right, so it would be great to take some uh, questions. Yeah. Times often driven by business considerations. So, is there like an optimum minimum procedure time for the average skilled operator for colonoscopy? Yeah, so that's a great question. So, um, the, the, the question was uh, really how long should a colonoscopy take in order to be able to make sure that you're doing a good exam? And there was a lot of work on this, as was alluded to by that slide, on what was called withdrawal time, you know, which was the total amount of examination time. And uh, uh, a whole line of research went down towards uh, increasing people's examination time. Uh, you know, ultimately, there was a study that showed that they were able to get people's examination time above a certain threshold. Uh, it's like around seven minutes or so. Uh, and that's on the withdrawal time. That seems like a pretty short amount of time to a lot of people, um, even with that. But the thought was, was that the people who had times that were above that were in the more likely to be in the kind of the higher detector range. And what those studies showed was that um, you could get almost 100% of the people, when you instituted a yes, you have to be doing it at least this period of time. You could get almost everyone to that level. The question was, what impact did that have on their adenoma detection rates? And um, it made no difference. Uh, they detected the same number of small polyps, the same number of large polyps. And that's because the time is not really the factor. It's, if you're doing a careful exam, it takes a longer period of time. But forcing people to take a longer period of time does not mean that they're going to do a careful exam. Um, and uh, the, so most of the change now, and I would say it's one of the reasons I, which, which, why our group is focusing on a lot of, uh, of this question, which is how do, you, how do you change people? How do you make people brush their teeth more carefully? You know, how do you make people come to a complete stop at a stop sign? Um, it's, it's a whole different area of behavioral uh, research and environmental research and social peer pressure research and a lot of other things. 
um, in addition to just kind of like some of the technical skills. Uh, and a number of studies have looked at this, including randomized trials, and uh, have not been able to move the needle very well. Um, so there's a whole body of research which is in this realm, but it's not so much focused on time. It's more focused on um, kind of compulsiveness and, uh, and, 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 and valuing this as a priority. And one of the reasons why I wanted to present it this way was that um, about a third of the total effectiveness of colonoscopy is related to quality. So if you want that 75%, um, you actually have to be able to have uh, high-quality exams because about a third of that effectiveness is just related to this variation in quality. Yes, Rich. I want to follow it up by reassuring everyone in the room that our adenoma detection rates here of our clinicians who are associated in the Dartmouth-Hitchcock network is fantastic. We have, we have consist, we've been studying the entire state for over a decade. We have a, a huge registry. It's one of the largest registries that's complete. Lynn Butterly now uh, works with the data set that's there. But we know that the adenoma detection rate of every clinician gastroenterologist or not, who does colonoscopy in our states, in our, in our Mutantra state, and it's, it's been funded research for a long time. I've been very happy to see that our adenoma detection rates are at the top for our state endoscopists. And there is some variation within our building, but we're all in the high rates. And we're in the round 40% rates. So we are, I just want to reassure you that colonoscopy, you're getting yeah, and yeah. just yesterday, the GIE, our endoscopy premier journal, dedicated the entire journal to colorectal cancer because of this month. And I was interested to see that there are some papers now talking about young endoscopists as opposed to all of those who've been in practice for a while. I'm saying that now, but um, that 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 and uh, several other features are starting to be teased out, and we will begin seeing what best practice is and then adopting that. And I think that implementation is a really important thing. How do you learn from the people that have the best outcomes? And again, I would just emphasize, cancer screen, what, what that 75% reduction or so with colonoscopy, assuming that's correct, I mean, it's a case control study, it probably somewhat overestimates it, but that averages in everybody. So the, this is just an incredibly effective screening modality. And the main thing is, is that we've studied it. Uh, I mean, people have studied this. But it's probably the same thing for control of people's high blood pressure, for control of people's cholesterol, for all of these different things in terms of the amount of variation that we see between clinicians or between medical centers or between other things. And so uh, part of the, the, the concept of this is, is just how do we apply this really to everything that we're doing in being able to systematically look at it and improve kind of higher, potentially high, higher priority targets. I'm sorry. I, I think we had another question. I know first over on that side of the room. <clears throat> Laggy time slides very much in my mind. I recently saw a patient who's a trucker who's hard to schedule. We now have better quality people with blood testing. He did the test. His test was positive. He's asymptomatic. It was 18 months ago. I, I have trouble getting him into schedule. I wonder if you have a magic bullet for him. Um, um, what, what do you think is the? How are we? How do we move that part of the ball to get to motivate people? the right way. You know, I, I don't want to say to him, you have cancer, we need to get it, because you know, he doesn't. But yeah. uh, don't think he does. Do you have any sort of feeling, thoughts about that? No, it's a, uh, you're right on point in, in that there are, um, how do we get people, the first is like, how do you get people screened? And then the second thing is, is how to be able to make sure they kind of like get appropriate follow-up. And so there's a whole body of 
research uh, around this. And um, again, I would, I would call out you know, Lynn's work um, in, in with the registry here and being able to get community and population-based data on a lot of aspects of cancer screening, um, though, because those really get to the real people that you're talking about. And um, a lot of it now is, is trying to be able to understand what people's levers are. So one of the, one of the examples um, towards this is, is being able to say, well, if someone doesn't, apply, uh, doesn't respond to the personal appeal, sometimes they respond to the family appeal. Um, and so uh, we, within KP, there's a, there's a, uh, they've started this where there's kind of like a do it for your family. Uh, and, uh, and that actually has boosted things like another 5 or 10%. Um, so there, there are a number of different strategies for it, but it does get to understanding what some of the individual levers, levers are, and it varies from person to person and, and also within different cultural groups. I guess we'll go over Kelly. <clears throat> Sorry. So it seems like um, there are two sort of different strategies to address the, uh, the difference in quality because of variation. One is to reduce the variation, so to train people to get to that higher level. And the other is to get more patients to the high-quality screening. <laughs> so as a primary care physician, right. I, I, people ask me all the time, who should I go to? Who should I go? Yeah. So I'd like to know the answer in terms of who actually gets best. So, so that's one thing. And actually, I guess there's, uh, it seems that if I knew that and, and started driving patients that way, that would be a big financial driver to address the other part of the problem, right. getting people to get themselves to that level. Um, so this gets to, so the question was, uh, there's two, uh, for, for, for people couldn't hear it, but there, there were two parts of it. You know, one is uh, improving quality among the providers, and then the second part is knowing who to be able to refer to. And this is a fairly common question across the board for surgery, uh, for a number of different factors that you say, well, you know, what are the high-performing centers, and then that's kind of where we send people to or high-performing people. And uh, this is something I think that, uh, that gastroenterology has been, has been grappling with. Part of it has been the difficulty of accurately reporting abnormal detection rates, because it is this linkage between a procedure and a result in pathology, which is often text-based uh, and not trans it doesn't have ICD-9 codes and things like that uh, often uh, associated with it. For a lot of people, it's at an outside laboratory that kind of comes back in and you know gets faxed in or something. With the electronic medical record, even um, in most places, this is not coded. And one of the reasons that we were able to do this is because we use a, 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 a Cerner system that puts things into what's called SNOMED codes that are like ICD-9 codes, so that each of the reports is able to be linked with that. But a lot of gastroenterologists are not able to calculate adenoma detection rates at all, and I don't know the methods whereby it's done here. Lynn, do you want to speak to that? Sure. Um, so, and we'll talk more about it later again. Uh, but in the New Hampshire colonoscopy registry, which is now in its 13th year, um, we provide uh, feedback reports to the participating endoscopists. And in the feedback reports are all of the quality indicators. And the primary quality indicator for colonoscopy is ABR or adenoma detection rate. Um, and uh, the way in which we do it is because the, the NCI has very kindly funded a large part of this registry, so the database is extremely capable. We have almost 200,000 exams, and we have 500 database data points, in other words, 500 variables 
for each of those patients. In terms of ADR, we are able to look at indication, so to differentiate screening ADR from surveillance ADR, and they are statistically different, and our group did publish on that a couple of years ago. So we're able to identify which are screening exams, we're able to separate out male and female, because remember, ADR benchmark expectations are different for men and women. So we can provide it combined, but we also provide by male and female. So we will provide your ADR um, for your screening exams and for your surveillance exams and overall, and each of those divided by male and female. The other important thing, and what you're saying, Doug, about pathology is so critical. I think one of the issues in these kind of databases is you know, who in the endo unit is tasked with this horrible, boring task of pulling all the pack and sending it to the database? And so the NHCR is unique in that what it does is we have arrangements with all of the PAC labs, because this is a statewide grant. This isn't just Dartmouth. This is basically almost every endo unit in the state. Um, and so we've had PAC labs even not in New Hampshire, but we've had relationships with, and then the ones in New Hampshire. We get the path into the registry, all of the path, and we have a trained staff person within the registry who's been with us for over a decade who takes the colonoscopy report of all the policies that were tells you where they were, how big they were, how they were removed, and the path report and links and matches them one for one. So when they go in our database, we have done the best job humanly possible to have accurate pathology for each of the policies. So when we report the ADR, we're hoping it's as close you can get to the truth, which is what we want. So, I mean, this is really a nation-leading type of effort, and you know, Lynn was kind of way ahead of the curve with this uh, you know, over, an, over a decade ago, but most places are not able to report this. But then, once you're, if you have it, then it just becomes a matter of what your institution's policy is relating to this. And um, these are always kind of sticky issues, as you can imagine. Um, but again, I would, I would emphasize that there's, there's two parts. You know, there's, there's getting above what are considered the, the quality thresholds, and you guys are well above that. Um, and then there's, well, gosh, how can we totally optimize things uh, that if you're a little bit higher versus a little bit lower? And I, I think that's where it gets to the, um, the question of what do you do additional selection within that group, and that gets to be, you know, because not, not, not everyone can go to... I'm going to stop referring to Yeah. <laughs> Maybe just one, one more question. We're just about out of time. Can you say something about studies that look at um, low-income populations, um, relationship of socioeconomic status or um, race and ethnicity, and to uptake for implementation and also effectiveness? Um, so, uh, so I guess there's, so the question was, is, there's, there's two parts of this, I think. There's low income, and then there's also by race, ethnicity, which uh, would be a little bit different. Um, so there, uh, I'm going to tackle the second one first. Uh, it seems that within organized programs, uh, so if you actually have some type of organized outreach, some type of organized contact, that gets rid of a lot of the disparities by race, ethnicity. Um, it introduces some, uh, because there actually are some different, slightly different types of selection. Uh, some populations seem to be more, a little more likely to choose colonoscopy, and some choose, seem to be a little bit more likely to choose uh, fecal immunochemical testing. Uh, I don't really know what the reasons are. But those differences are you know, like a 5% difference, whereas uh, by, 
by having an organized system of actually contacting people and getting people in for screening, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of doubling everyone's rates um, and then kind of narrowing some of these, some of these differences. Um, the, the second question is, is about uh, by, uh, by low-income population. Uh, and that is more challenging. It was one of the reasons why some of the slides that uh, uh, we showed had uh, UT Southwestern, which is a safety net hospital. Uh, and, and, and that may also be reflected by some aspects of rural uh, populations as well. But that is more challenging um, because people have less in the way of resources of you know, having to take off from your job. It's harder. You may not have paid leave off. You know, uh, being able to have another person who can kind of like take time off from their job and to be able to come in and have you screening. Um, and the, they, UT Southwestern has done randomized trials showing that organized outreach substantially increases screening, but it still is at a lower rate than, uh, than in other populations. Um, so they've, there's been work looking at you know, patient navigators and a number of other things that have all shown those to have some effectiveness in those populations as well in terms of being able to get people screened. <clears throat> Um, so that, that's a potential avenue forward, but there's still a little bit of a gap with that. Um, the only thing I would say is within a lot of organized populations, such as the VA and to some extent uh, KP, th those populations have a lot of socioeconomic diversity. And, um, and even within those, within those populations, it seems that the organized programs and the VA is really you know, a leader in this as well. Uh, you know, they've been very successful in being able to get people in. A lot of it is just continuing to go after people and kind of reminding them and using, you know, kind of culturally appropriate reminders such as you had alluded to and kind of uh, getting to different uh, what people's drivers are. Yeah, I would say that uh, electronic health record has really helped the VA for many years and, and drives high rates. It's also nice to hear you're using Cerner, so you may not know that the VA is moving to Cerner as well, so maybe it'll make some unique collaborations between Kaiser and the VA in, in some of these studies. So it took a few years to get Doug out here. His daughter's actually a senior now, but it was worth the wait. Uh, thanks so much for a really um, thought-provoking you know, grand rounds. Great. Thanks so much. <laughs>